0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4 is where we are going to spend our time. We're finishing up this chapter. Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet. There are hardback black Bibles under every chair that you can uh, open up to page 977. That's Ephesians 4. Uh, You can actually have that Bible. If you don't have uh, an ESV or something, you want to take that home, feel free to do that. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Uh, I have said as we've been uh, in this Ephesians sermon series that this book is broken down into two halves. Okay, uh, chapters one through three, uh, we deal with belief, right? Paul really nails doctrine and belief in one through three. And now in chapters four through six, he moves to behavior. And so we've started in on kind of the behavior thing. And I've just said on repeat that belief must precede behavior, Belief, what you believe about God always precedes the things that you do for God, the behavior that he wants to see uh, bear fruit in your life. So in chapter four, as we've turned the corner on this book, okay, we've started into some behaviors within the church. And so the first week we talked about being united as a church, that, that Christians in all churches should be united around the essential doctrines of our faith. We talked about that, and then last week we saw that God provides every single Christian, every single follower of Christ, each one with gifts and abilities that are supposed to be used to equip one another in our gifts, and that we would build up the church towards maturity. So we talked about being gifted last week. Now, we're going to finish chapter four today, and in the last two paragraphs of chapter four, we really find kind of a microchasm of the entire book. Okay, so we're going to see two paragraphs. The first paragraph, verses 17 through 24, recaps the whole belief side of things. Okay, and then in the second half, verses 25 through 32, uh, Paul gives us a list and he presents individual behaviors that we as Christians should live out. So I'm going to spend half of our time on the first half because we got to get the belief thing. We've got to get the belief thing. And then we'll spend our second half on the list of do's and don'ts that he gives us because our behaviors do matter, but the motivation behind our behaviors is vital. So that's what we're gonna do. Here we go, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Follow along. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds, so so Paul opens this paragraph by mentioning the Gentiles again. The Gentiles were mentioned earlier in this book, but in this context, Paul isn't talking about uh, nationality. He's not talking about um, whether you are a part of the Jewish nation or not. This simply means, in this context, Gentile means anyone who doesn't follow Jesus Christ. Anyone who's not a Christian in this context is considered a Gentile, and he says. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now that's fascinating because Paul is writing to primarily Gentiles at this point. The whole church at Ephesus that he is talking to mostly were Gentile converts, not Jewish converts to Jesus. So these aren't Jews who became Christians. These are Gentile pagan Romans who have become Christians. And so he's saying to former Gentiles, don't continue living in that former way of life. Don't don't do what you used to do as the Gentiles do. That's what he's saying. And it sets up the whole section. This sets up the whole section because he's going to give a description of what the Gentiles are like, what they were like, these people. And then he's going to contrast it with how they should now as Christians live. So again, belief and then behavior. This is how the Gentiles walk. And really, this is how each one of us walked before Jesus saved us. So this one is where we can read it over ourselves as well. Look at verses 18 and 19. This is how the Gentiles walk. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this is his description of what the Gentiles do, of how the Gentiles live. And we're gonna walk through that real quick. This is what non-Christians or really each one of us even before Christ saved us, this is how we walked. First, it said that we were darkened in our understanding. There was darkness around our understanding. Paul goes out of his way to emphasize there's this mental dimension to our depravity. There's this mental estrangement from God. Reasonably, rationally, our minds were set drastically different than they are after Christ, okay? They were affected. Our thinking was darkened. We were, sometimes Jesus will say, blind. We were blind to his truth. So we are darkened in our understanding. We were alienated, the next phrase, alienated from the life of God. So that means that that the Gentiles were separate from the life of God. They were dead in our trespasses and sins, having no relationship with the living God. And because of that state, we have a hardness of heart. There's this hardness of heart. There's this stubbornness that's willful and culpable. It's hardness. There's this obstinate rejection of the truth of God. And it's the beginning of this terrible downward path towards evil. So this is a chipper way to begin, right? Feel really good? Feel real chipper on this, okay? Uh, He goes on in verse 19. He says that that hardness of heart has caused a loss of all sensitivity. The text said that they've become calloused, right? So like a callous is a thick overgrowth of skin, okay? This is uh, the, the idea here, this like skin that has become so thick and so hard that it no longer feels pain, that it no longer has sensitivity, That's what he's saying. They've become calloused. And because of this lack, this callousing, this lack of moral feeling and discernment, there are no restraints. There's no restraints to keep us from plunging into all kinds of degrading activities. He lists a few. He says um, all kinds of sensualities and all kinds of impurities. And he says we are greedy to practice those things. That word greedy could be also translated we lust. We lust to practice these things. Things, a continual lust for more and more and more. This is the downward darkened state of the Gentile. And so he says, you must no longer walk that way. You must no longer walk like the Gentiles do, like you used to do. Don't go back to those ways. This feels very much like, uh, like a recap of Ephesians chapter 2. If you remember chapter 2, he said, You were dead. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You were a son of disobedience. You lived for your flesh. You deserved God's wrath. But God saved you. Remember that? That's what's going on here. He's recapping the darkness with which we once walked in. Now, he turns. He turns in verse 20. Look at verse 20. But, there's another but. Remember? But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Now, if you're reading in the New Living Translation, you might be, I don't know if you are, but it, some translations will, will translate this, that is not the way you learned about Christ. But that is not the way you learned about Christ, uh, which is how different translations will translate this. The problem is the word about is nowhere in the Greek. It's not in the Greek, okay? Actually, Paul uses a very unique and unusual wording in that phrase. It is literally translated, you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ. Nowhere else in the entire Bible, nor in any pre-biblical Greek documents that we have, do we ever have the phrase to learn a person. You did not learn Christ this way this is a unique phrase of Paul here and what that means is that hear me Jesus Christ himself is the content that we learn we don't learn about Jesus we learn him we learn Christ and this is why Christianity is a religion and yet is so much more than a mere religion Okay, religions are an an, an adherence to a set of beliefs or doctrines and precepts. That's what a religion is. And yes, Christianity is a religion. There's an aspect of belief and doctrine and, and tenets that we follow. But where Christianity differs from all of the other world religions is that we don't just learn the religion. We don't just learn the, the, the faith, we actually receive Christ. We learn Christ. Okay, learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teachings. This is why we use language like, have you received Christ? It's not, do you just believe these things intellectually about the Bible and whether it's true or false? Do you have a relationship with this guy? Have you learned Christ? So this is, this is a reminder. Paul is reminding these Christians that, that who they were, who they were before Christ as the Gentiles, and that they have actually received Christ, that they have learned Christ. But this is not how you learned Christ, is what he says. Now, this is the crux of the passage. Verses 21 through 24 is the crux of this passage, of this first half of the message. Here we go. Verse 21. This is not the way that you learned Christ, So Paul says, there's this old self and there's this new self. And and we are to put off the old self, the the Gentile self, the the fallen self, and we are to put on the new self. And this metaphor, the new self, old self, new man, old man sort of thing shows up all over the New Testament. In multiple places I could take you. Uh, It's similar in the metaphoric sense to putting on a garment or taking off a garment. That's the illustration here. The old self must be taken off, taken off of your body, taken off of who you are. And the new self must be put on like a new set of clothes. My favorite illustration of this uh, picture is in Jesus' life and teaching. John chapter 11, we read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I've talked about this before. Lazarus is, Lazarus is one of Jesus' best friends, okay? Uh, Jesus hears that Lazarus has fallen ill and that Lazarus eventually dies. And, and what happens in the story is Jesus shows up to Lazarus' house after he is already dead. In fact, he even kind of delays a few days. The text says that he waits like three or four days before he goes just to make sure that everybody thinks that guy is legit dead. The text says, Lord, he stinketh. Remember that in the old, old King James? It's literally, that's what it says. If you read King Jimmy, it says, Lord, he stinketh. Because the body's been in the tomb for multiple days, and it's starting to decompose, okay? So Jesus shows up on the scene, talks with Lazarus, his sisters. It's a fascinating conversation that he has with Martha and Mary. Um, he weeps over the death of his friend. He mourns in his heart over death and decay in our midst. And then he comes to the tomb. Jesus comes to the tomb. And the, this is the part of the story that always fascinates me. It always fascinates me. John 11:43. 43, I'll put this up on the screen. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, biblical authors don't waste words. They don't waste words. And it's always bothered me that they had to be commanded to unbind him. It's always bothered me. Why would you have to? No, and you know what? We weren't planning on it, Jesus. Thank you for commanding us on that one though. Like why, why, why command he be unbound? Why actually say this? Well, I don't know about you, but even though I've been made alive in Christ, even though I've been saved, even though I have put on the new self as it were, I still have a propensity to put on the clothes that I wore before. Like when I was dead, like I, that old self, I still have this propensity to kind of cling to those clothes. Theologically, we call this residual effects of sin. You ever wonder why as a Christian you don't just stop sinning? It was shocking to me at first, like when I first got saved, that like I could not stop sinning even though I was a Christian. That's the residual effects of sin. Other, uh, another theological term that we'll sometimes use there is the idea of backsliding. That as a Christian you can, in your walk with Christ, slide backwards. Now, now hear me. If you are in Christ... Here's the facts about what has happened to you. I'm just gonna pretty much recap what he just said. You were dead in your sin. Okay, you were darkened, alienated, hardened, calloused, given up to sensualities, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You were dead in the grave like Lazarus. And just at the right time, Jesus stepped into your life and he called out your name. He said to you, get up and walk. Walk. That's what he has done spiritually in your heart and you went from death to life. That's true of every Christian in here, regardless if you got saved when you were six or when you were 60, that's what happened. But even though you've been made alive in Christ, you were still all wrapped up in these clothes, these grave clothes of your former deadness. You were bound hand and foot. And now Christ says, Unbind him. If you are in Christ and you have been saved, Jesus is saying to you, it's time to take off those clothes. That stuff doesn't fit you anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You need to be unbound so that you can go. And this is for the rest of the life of the believer, what we do. This is progressive sanctification. We progressively take off the old and put on the new. We remove our grave clothes and we put on new Christ clothes. Now, that's what's all happened in the first paragraph of this. In the first paragraph of this section, all he's doing is reminding us of how dead we were and how alive we've been made in Christ. That's what he's done. And and now Paul will finally give us a list list of things to do and not to do. And all the type A people shouted a hallelujah, right? Finally, a list, like a list, something that I can actually do. The rest of this chapter is a list of specific, concrete commands with clear distinction between the old way of life and the new way. You'll see this as we get into the text here. So these are some like nitty gritty parts of what it means to be a Christian. He's going to say things like, don't lie. Don't steal, like commandments here, okay? And before I read it, I just want to go one more time. Paul is taking painstaking efforts for you to understand the belief part first. You must understand that you have to believe in Christ. You need to learn Christ before you take on these behaviors. If you get this backwards, it will really mess up your faith life. It genuinely will. Not because behaviors aren't important, okay? Behavior is absolutely important to the Christian life, but your motivation of why you behave is crucial. Here's the illustration that Charles Spurgeon uses. I'll just rip him off, okay? Because he's the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon says it like this. There once was a gardener. There once was a gardener and he grew a carrot. The gardener grew the carrot. It was a huge carrot, biggest carrot he'd ever grown in his entire life as a gardener. So he took that carrot to the king of his region. And he said, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown. This is the most magnificent carrot I've ever grown. I want to give it to you because you are my king. You are the king that I love. You're a great king. And I just want you to have this carrot as a token of my love. And as the gardener hands him the carrot and walks away, the king says, wait, wait, wait. I see how much you love me. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to give you a whole nother acre on your land so that you can garden even better. You will become a greater gardener because of your love for me. So the gardener goes home and is rejoicing. He's got another acre. He can grow more carrots. Okay. But there was a a nobleman in the court as the king did this, who happened to see this. And he said to himself, my goodness, an acre for a carrot. That's a great deal. If that's, If that's what the king rewards for a carrot, what would he reward for a horse? And so the next day he brought a horse. He had a stable full of pure thoroughbred horses. He brought a horse before the king and he said, oh, king, I I raise horses and this is the greatest horse I have ever raised and I wanna give it to you as a token of my love for you. But the king was wise and discerning and the king said, All right, thanks very much. I'll take that horse. And then turned to leave. And and the man, the nobleman, was bewildered by this. He was baffled. And the king turned and said, Hey, let me explain what just happened. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you are giving yourself the horse. So these behaviors we're going to read are are carrots. They're not horses. You need to know this. Okay, they are what we do because of our great love for our king. They're not what we do to get his love or God help us get something from him. This paragraph gives us, these, this list, he will give us a vice and a virtue, the counterbalance. So I'm not gonna commentate on every single one, okay? We, we would be here all day, but I'll give a little bit more on some of these. Let's look at verse 25. Here's our list. Everybody's excited. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So the first vice in verse 25 is, is falsehood. Being false, lying, okay? We are, Christians are not to be false. We are to be speakers of truth. Nobody's gonna argue with that one. Don't lie, tell the truth. Check. Next, okay, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, that's the second one. The second Command is an interesting one, because if you read it closely, anger is mentioned here not as the vice, but the virtue. He doesn't say don't be angry, right? In fact, he says be angry, but then he commands you to be angry in a way that does not sin, that there is a way to be angry that is actually loving. There's sin that can come out of anger, but anger itself isn't the problem here. Anger, actually, if you think about it, is in fact a part of love. Okay, love cannot exist without the potential to be angry. When you love something, when you love something or someone, you will always find yourself angry at anything that tries to destroy that thing or that person. So uh, I'm angry often with my daughter. I am. She shows up here and is like an angel. She is not, all right? (laughs) I I, I do, I get angry at Harper when she does something sinful. Like when she lies or when she is disobedient or when she's deceptive, she's sneaky. She's sketchy, right? Like, (laughs) and I get angry at that. I do, I get angry at that. Why? Because that's how I was. And I'll tell you this, I know and hate the fruit that is wrought in a life lived like that. And I love her and I don't want her to go through and experience some of the things that I went through and experienced. And so I get angry at her. So that's anger. That's this loving anger. Be angry, but do not sin. And see, that means that our problem is that our anger is often sinful. Anger isn't the problem. Sinful anger is the problem. And it shows up, I think most oftenly, as selfish anger. Okay. Selfish anger is the problem. We want to get them back for what they did to us. That's why we're angry. We're angry because, you know, they hit you. So you hit them back. You know, they, they said that thing that hurt you and and they're going to get theirs and you find yourself angry or even listen back to my daughter, back to Harper. Okay. Frankly, I can still become angry with her. Not because I genuinely have love and affection for her. Like I get, I find myself getting angry at her because she annoys me sometimes. Not because she's doing anything wrong, but because she's just interrupting me time. That's selfish anger. That's selfish. That's sinful anger. So he says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. And it's a lot harder to do than it sounds. All right, verse 28, the next one. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so Paul saying you shouldn't be a thief if you're a christian you shouldn't steal Right? I think we would all agree, like, don't steal, that's a good thing. But then it goes without saying that if that thief is converted to Christ, they will begin to abandon that practice and pick up other practices. There's a vice associated with the, uh, a virtue associated with the shedding of the stealing vice. He will not only give up stealing, but then he will do what he can to earn an honest living. Right? So get a job. That's what that Bible verse means. Those of you who don't work, you need a job. Work with your hands, do something honest, get a job, but that's not even where it ends. It's not like, hey, stop stealing, get a job. It then says, it culminates with you becoming a person of generosity. So it goes from stealing to working to sharing. Do you see that movement in the text? So I, I, recently, um, I recently heard a story about uh, the persecuted church in Iran, and I, it, it made me think of this this week. Um, so if you know anything about what's going on in the Middle East, there's places in the Middle East where the church, the underground church is exploding. One of them is Iran, okay? And uh, one of the strategies for the underground church in Iran is that uh, they do evangelism like this. They smuggle New Testaments into their country. Um, And then each little network house church, these underground churches, uh, have like little piles of these New Testaments when they gather together. And inside of each New Testament is a little phone number that people can call, okay? And then each member is allowed to take up to seven New Testaments every time they gather together with the goal of giving a New Testament out one every single day. That's how they're doing evangelism in Iran and the church is exploding. Well, I just heard this story uh, a couple months ago. A lady saying that she found one of the New Testaments with a phone number in it called. She called the phone number and she talked with a woman on the phone and the woman, that woman led her to Christ, okay? And then they started meeting and she began to disciple her. And a few weeks after she became a Christian, uh, this new Christian lady says, wanna know how I found that, that New Testament? Well, I am a handbag thief. I'm a single mother with three kids, nobody to provide for us, and so I have been stealing six to seven handbags every single day to support myself and my children. And I stole a handbag a couple weeks ago, and there was no money in it, and I normally just ditch them, but inside this purse was a New Testament. And I read it. And then I called you. And now that I've become a follower of Jesus, I've I've only stolen one handbag. So that's progress, right? (laughs) How incredible is this? The thief starts to work so that they become generous. This is what Christ, like the belief in Christ does to your behavior. Seeing that, okay? Verse 29, Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is a prohibition against speech that is unsavory which I would say includes, does include kind of like obscene speech, vulgar speech, so like cussing and those sorts of things, but it also involves slander, right? slanderous talk and contemptuous talk and, and gossiping. Goodness, what a, what a poison gossip is, even in the church. See, Christians ought to repent concerning every careless word is how I would put this. Every careless word. Word, words that help to build up uh, the, the body of Christ are powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But, the, but on the other hand, words that endanger the unity of the body, the things that we've talked about in chapter four, it, it says, the text says that that grieves the Holy Spirit. That grieving the Holy Spirit is actually attached to the command to watch your mouth. That's how you grieve God's spirit is by your speech being foul. And then verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That those last two verses, it's kind of like the junk drawer. <laughs> He just starts throwing more and more malice and slander. And he's just throwing all of these things out, different vices, right? Malice, wrath, bitterness, and then the following virtues, kindness, forgiveness, tenderheartedness. We could could literally dig into each one of those, but for the sake of time, this is the list that he's giving us. He's giving us a list of behaviors that follow after our belief in Christ. So those behaviors, if we are honest with ourselves, and I know this is church; it's no place to be honest. But if, if if this is a place where you feel okay being honest, just with you, just with you, I think if we were to read that list and actually take a, a sober-minded assessment of our lives, we would say, "Uh-oh." Like even in those behaviors, I'm not doing all right, right? I struggle with that one, and I struggle with that one, and I struggle with these sins, and sometimes. I slip on that one. Sometimes I fall on my face. Sometimes I I, I grow cold in my heart. Does this mean mean that I'm not saved? Like, does this mean that, that I'm only wearing my old grave clothes, that I'm still bound up with these old ways? And does it mean I'm not living the life of the new self? Is that what that means? Well, it might. It might be an indicator of that, but... I do want to point out that even the greatest characters in the Bible often will fall back into old sinful habits. They will, right? So like sometimes really bad ones even. Like Peter denying Jesus three times in the space of one evening when Jesus really needed him at that moment. Okay, one of Paul's traveling companions, a guy named John Mark, uh, abandoned the mission field, abandoned Paul when things got tough. Just backed out on him. King David, I mean, we know the story of King David, but he commits adultery, he murders, he lies about it and refuses to repent until things get real sour in his world. Can you realize we're not letting him work with the kids here? King David doesn't get a job at Fathom Church. He's not really volunteer material. Abraham doubted God so severely that he told another man that his wife was his sister just to save his own skin. Not just one time, but twice in Genesis. So I say all that to say, listen, as a believer, I think you're gonna struggle with residual effects of sin with this old self for the rest of your life. Now, you should be growing in a forward trajectory. You should be growing, but you will not get to the place where you don't have that residue on you still. And the question is not Am I saved? The question is, what happens to you in your heart when you do fall back into those things? What do you do when you fall? Do you repent? Do you repent to God and do you return to him or do you berate yourself and run from him? Do you return or do you run? So let me end with this. Peter Like I mentioned, denied Jesus three times. Right? He denied Jesus three times, the rooster crows, he goes out and weeps, and then he watches as the Savior of the world is crucified, as his best friend is tortured and killed. And then we get this little verse in John chapter 21 that I think is fascinating. John 21, 3 says, Simon Peter said to them, This is the other disciples, I'm going fishing which is not a command, all right? If you like to fish, it's not a command, okay? But, but Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, if you remember, fishing was what Peter did before Jesus called him to be an apostle. That's where he found him was fishing. And so here we have Peter depressed over his own failure, discouraged by the death of Jesus, distraught over what to do next in his life. And so he decides to go back to his pre-Jesus life. He's putting back on the old self. I'm going fishing. You ever done that? Not gone fishing, but you ever gone back to the old life when you didn't know what else to do? The verse continues. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. The disciples said to him, we'll go with you. But they went out and got in the boat and that night they caught nothing. What a grace it is that they caught nothing that night. He went back to his old life only to find that it wasn't the same anymore. He fished all night and caught nothing. Have you been to that place? You go back and find that there's nothing left for you there. Maybe you're discouraged spiritually today, right? So you are tempted to run back to your old life, but it just doesn't, I promise you, it will not satisfy you the same way that it used to. You will go out all night at your old ways and you'll find that there's nothing to be had there. This is the temptation though. This is our temptation church. Those old grave clothes were so comfortable. They fit us like a glove. The old self is so easy to return to. The, the comfort of fishing will beckon you. It'll beckon you to come. Return to to where and who you are. That's the great temptation. But I just say this all the time. I say it all the time in sermons. You don't have to do the things you used to do because you aren't the same person that you used to be. Behavior does matter. You don't have to do those same things, but it's because of your belief, because you aren't the same person any longer. That's not the way you learned Christ. So have you learned Christ? Have you learned Christ? Have you received Christ? If not, that's the first step. That's of utmost importance. But if you have learned Christ, then he says, you follow me. Repent, run to him, return to him. Put on the new self today. God help us with this. God help us, let's pray. Father, we bless you. We bless your name for what feels like rehashing another text that sounds eerily similar to what we've already talked about in Ephesians. But God, as I step back, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that that your servant Paul goes to painstaking lengths to remind us that belief precedes behavior that yes, behavior matters and it does follow our belief, but it never precedes belief. Because I would bet that there are men and women and students in here today hearing this and and seeing their behaviors out of sort and it's causing them to wonder about their belief. And I would say the, the former must be dealt with first. Belief always precedes behavior but our behaviors are a good barometer to see if we are growing into Christ, if we are putting off the old and putting on the new. So Holy Spirit, preach to our hearts. You are the true preacher of Fathom Church. Preach to us, convict us, encourage us, speak really clearly to us in in ways that are undeniable so that we would know the things we need to put off and the things we need to put on. Lord, this is how we attain maturity. This is our goal to progressively become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the former darkened Gentile selves. We need you, God, help us in this. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit.